Have you ever stopped to think what you're doing in the present moment? You can ask that question of yourself in two ways. What are you doing here, i.e., justify yourself. Why are you here? And then secondly, while you're here, exactly what are you doing? When you say you're practicing mindfulness, what does it mean to practice mindfulness? What's the purpose of staying here in the present moment and practicing mindfulness? I raise these questions in preface to a talk on a topic that probably most of you haven't heard of, or may have heard of only in passing. But the Buddha himself said that it was probably the most important. He's, he said he doesn't envision any other quality of mind that was more important for the sake of awakening than this one quality. <clears throat> and if you were to stop and ask yourself, what, what would you say is the most important thing to bring to the practice? What sort of quality of mind is most important? I've done a little informal survey this last week, and most people answer mindfulness. We also get answers as equanimity and persistence. Um, but the actual answer that the Buddha gave us is uh, this word, appropriate attention. Um, in, in Pali, it's yoniso manasikara, yoniso manasikan in Thai. <coughs> attention here means not just simply paying attention, but it's how you look at an issue. Um, as they say nowadays, how you frame the issue, the questions you bring to it how you understand it, and how you look at things in line with the frame that you've created. Um, so that's what attention means. It has a tactical meaning here. Now what makes attention appropriate? Well, given the fact that we're working toward awakening, which the Buddha said is the ultimate happiness, and our basic human assumption about human motivation that the Buddha makes is that we all want happiness, we all want to put an end to suffering. Therefore, the issue here is suffering and the end of suffering. And how do, you how do you look at that issue? Appropriate attention would mean any way of framing that issue that provides an understanding of suffering to help bring about its end. So that's appropriate attention as, in, as the Buddhist definition is seeing things in line with the Four Noble Truths. It doesn't mean just learning about the Four Noble Truths or having heard about them, but actually looking at your experience, framing your experience in those terms. In other words, you come into the present moment and you realize there are four things that can happen in the present moment. Either there's suffering or stress. There's a cause of suffering or stress. There are things that you can do to bring about its end, and there's the actual experience of that particular instance of suffering or stress ending. I.e., four things in the present moment that you can focus on. Each of them has a duty. With regard to suffering, the duty or the most skillful thing to do with it is to try to comprehend it learn about it, understand exactly how it comes, how it goes, why it comes, why it goes. So there's an active investigation that has to go on in order to understand the suffering that, or stress you may feel in the present moment. As for craving, the cause of suffering, the appropriate response is to abandon it. You see it arising, you realize that it's something you're doing, you just stop doing it, put it into it. The path or the path to the end of suffering, things that you can do to bring it out, bring it about, um, the duty here is to develop it. Any mental qualities you see that would be useful in putting into the suffering, you should work on developing them. In other words, you don't just sit there and see mindfulness come and go, or concentration come and go, and say, isn't that nice? Now it's coming, now it's going. You say, well, once it comes, what can we do to maintain it? What can we do to make it stronger? If it's not there, what can we do to give rise to it? Then finally, when the end of suffering comes, it's your duty to realize it, to notice it. Many times, one particular instance of stress will end in the mind, but we're not noticing at all because we're off to something else. 
In other words, we, we drop one form of craving to pick up another one. And it's like the story they have of the person with one hand trying to catch fish. You catch a fish and you've got a fish in your hand, you see another fish, you drop that fish, you pick up another fish. And you just go after fish, 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 fish. You never realize stop what it's like not to have to grab a fish. Okay? So, we have certain duties in the present moment. Mindfulness, one of the duties with regard to mindfulness is then to develop it. This is something we want to work on developing. <coughs> The Buddha also defines appropriate attention in terms of looking at everything in your present moment in these terms. For example, he defines suffering as clinging to the five aggregates, which Gil has probably told you about the five aggregates. If you're brand new, what the first aggregate is form, just the form, say, of your body. The second one is feeling, feelings of pleasure or pain. Third is perceptions, the way you label things in the mind, the name you give to things, lectern, glass, bowl, flowers. Uh, then the fourth is fabrication, which is intentional thought constructs. And you have an intention to work with these other things and turn them into a thought. And then finally there's consciousness. Consciousness of the six senses, counting the mind as the sixth. And so what you've got here, <coughs> these are the things we tend to cling to and many times we identify with them. We identify with our body. We identify with our feelings, perceptions, thought constructs. We identify with our consciousness. And the Buddha says, Be because you identify them, you're going to suffer. And so the way to look at them is try to look at these things that you have been identifying with and look at them in, in ways that make you see that they're not really worth clinging to. So that also qualifies as appropriate attention. The Buddha gives a few examples of what he would say be inappropriate attention. In other words, you're looking at the wrong issue, you're framing things in the wrong way for putting it into suffering. He gives a long list of inappropriate questions basically to ask. And they start out, with questions that many of us have been spending most of our lives asking is, do I exist? Do I not exist? Who am I? The Buddha says, don't ask. Because all you do, he says, is you get entangled either in the view that you have a self or that you have no self and then you have to identify, they have to um, <coughs> justify those views. And you get entangled with what he calls a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, um, a thorn bush of views. In other words, you, these views don't, these questions don't help put an end to suffering. So instead, he says, you look at the present moment in terms of these four things, stress, its cause, the ending of stress, and the things that you can do to bring about an end to stress. In other words, you're looking at the present moment in terms of cause and effect, action and result. Stress would be the result of unskillful action. The ending of stress would be the result of skillful actions. So look, try to look at everything not in terms of whether you exist or who you are or that, but okay, what's happening? What are you doing in the present moment and what's coming about as a result? As you look at the present moment in terms of cause and effect or action and result, you begin to realize that some of the stress that you're experiencing in the present moment comes from present actions. You stick your fire in the flame, okay, it's going to hurt immediately. You pull it out, okay, it stops hurting. Other examples of stress in the present moment come from things that you've done in the past. In other words, you may have hurt yourself when you know when you were a week ago or so, and you're still hurting from that. Or you may have allowed yourself to get involved in a very unskillful relationship last week, and now you're still suffering from that unskillful relationship. So, in other words, the present moment is not just sort of a thing in and of itself. It has an it has an impact, or it feels an impact from past actions. And at the same time, the intentions you have right now 
not only influence the present, but they also move on into the future. So to understand the present moment, it's not just sort of being there in the pristine present moment, but you have to understand how the present moment relates to the past and how it can relate to the future as well. When you see this, then you begin to understand the issue of stress and suffering. In other words, there are some things you're doing right now that are causing you stress. Other things, the cause of stress came from the past. There's nothing you can do about it right now except change the way you relate to that past cause. At the same time, you also have to think about, well, when I do X, what's going to happen as a result? If I spit into the wind, what's going to happen? <laughs> it's not just you know, the being present for the spitting and not being, not being responsible for what happens at the end. Um, so looking at the present moment, we talk about being mindful of the present moment. It's not just sort of being there in the present moment, but it's understanding the present moment in terms of cause and effect the relationship that things you've done to the, in the past are affecting you now. And also having some anticipation for what you do now is going to have an impact on in the, into the future. <clears throat> so given this framework, okay, exactly what is mindfulness? Being mindful in the present moment. The traditional translation of mindfulness is keeping something in mind. It's the ability to remember. Now this may sound strange. All of us have been taught mindfulness is sort of being in the present, being aware of the present. The Buddha actually has another word for that. That's sampajanya, which means alertness. Being alert to what's actually happening, what you're doing, what the immediate really results you're getting. Mindfulness actually means keeping something in mind. And so what is it that you're keeping in mind as you come to the present moment? Well, one, you're keeping in mind this framework of the Four Noble Truths. Or to put it more simple terms, you're the issue of skillful and unskillful actions. What are you doing right now that could be skillful? What, what, what plans do you have or intentions you have that might be unskillful? So this also means that you focus in the present moment. The big issue in the present moment is your intention. What are you intending to do right now? And as you explore this, um, as you get deeper and deeper into the present moment and deeper and deeper into the power of intention, you realize this intention, these intentions you have, some of them are clear and conscious and a lot of them are subconscious. You think of doing something and then you only realize afterwards that you actually intended to do that, that there was a planning that went through that. And a lot of the purpose of the meditation is to get more and more in touch with these subliminal intentions. This is why you want to be more alert to the present moment, more clear about what you're doing so that you can make these choices more deliberately, with more wisdom and with more clarity. Um, so we talked about just now mindfulness being important. This is actually what mindfulness does. It keeps this issue in mind. What are you doing right now? Is it going to be skillful? Is it not going to be skillful? One of the, Buddha, the questions the Buddha asks, as the monks ask themselves every day, days and nights fly past, fly past, what am I doing right now? And it's a useful question for lay people to ask, too. You know, time slips away, slips away, slips away. What are you doing with your time? You've got this moment right now. What are you doing with it? What would be the most skillful thing that you could do? Um, and as you get more alert and more mindful, you begin to realize that you have more choices in the present moment, and your range of what's skillful and unskillful, you get more sensitive to it. We also mentioned just now that equanimity is important. What, what does equanimity mean in light of appropriate attention? means if you see that there are certain things happening in the present moment that are results of past actions, you can't do anything about them. Okay, you learn to have <coughs> equanimity about things that you can't change. The reason you have equanimity about them is so you don't waste your energy on things that you can't change, 
So you can instead focus your energy on things that you can, i.e., focus back on your intentions. How are you relating to these things right now? In other words, a pain may be coming as a result of a past action, but you have the choice of how you're going to relate to the pain. Either you can get upset and rail against the universe, why is God doing this to me? Or you can get down on yourself, why was I so stupid as to, you know, to stick my finger into that, mouse, into, that, into that snake's mouth last week? Um, that, doesn't do it, that doesn't accomplish anything. You remember, okay, no more sticking of fingers into snake's mouths. <laughs> But at the present moment, you've got this pain. How are you going to relate to the pain? You have that choice. So you develop equanimity for your past mistakes or the present suffering that you're getting from it so that you can learn how to deal with it in a skillful way and not add more suffering on top. The image the Buddha gives is of a person being shot by an arrow and then turning around and shooting himself with a second arrow. <laughs> Which is what we do a lot of times. You've got this physical pain or you've got this emotional problem and it's not enough. You tie yourself up in knots as you just get more and more upset about it. So the purpose of equanimity is learn okay, how not to shoot that second arrow. Learn how to accept the things that you can't change so you can focus on the things that you can. <clears throat> to see the, the importance of the issue of appropriate attention, both in dealing with mindfulness and in dealing with equanimity, it might be useful to compare this, these, this understanding of mindfulness with other ways that mindfulness is defined. We often think that mindfulness is pretty basic, it's pretty simple. Everyone says, be mindful, and you know what it means to be mindful. But if you actually look at it, me, the second part of the appeal is that you're not committed to any belief system when you practice mindfulness. You, know, you can be mindful of your breath. And as my teacher once told my father when he went to visit in Thailand, I suggested to my father he might want to learn meditation, and my teacher's first question to a John Thurman was that you know, he, my father, was a Christian, and was like, this going to be any problem in the meditation? And as John Thurman said, okay, we're going to be looking at the breath. Now, the breath isn't Christian, and it's not Buddhist. <laughs> it's, it's universal. You can stay right here. You're not committed to anything. Once you look at the breath, then you can start looking at directly at your mind, and when you're looking at directly at your mind, then we can talk about your mind without issues of religious affiliation getting in the way. However, there is the issue about the fact that if you look at the different ways that mindfulness is taught at present, you find there are a lot of different definitions. Just now I was thinking, last night I was thinking about three and I was meditating, I was sort of thinking about a fourth one. Um, we have mindfulness defined as bare awareness, non-reactive awareness. You have mindfulness defined as appreciative awareness, really tasting that raisin as you're chewing on it. It's that's another definition of mindfulness. There's mindfulness which is defined as acceptance. And acceptance sometimes is called affectionate awareness and sometimes is called total awareness. We'll get into these in a, few, in a minute. So we've got four different ways in which mindfulness is defined. Now the question is, is this just simply a semantic difference or is there a different agenda behind the different definitions, a different way of understanding suffering? The way I've framed the talk so far, you're going to be suspicious. Okay, there must be something behind all this. Okay. Okay. In other words, we've been framed. <laughs> we think we're doing something with no commitment, but we're committing to an actual idea of what suffering comes from. Take, for instance, the idea that mindfulness is just bare awareness or non-reactivity, in which you're just present for the present and you just do not react in any way at all, no matter what comes up and that this in and of itself is mindfulness. Behind this, a definition of mindfulness is an assumption that suffering comes from activity. Um, if you allow activity to stop, 
you will burn up the results of past activity as they come up, and, but you will not be creating any new activity, and that in and of itself will be the end of suffering. Okay, that's the assumption behind the bare awareness school. In other words, suffering comes from activity or reactivity. Mindfulness defined as appreciative awareness basically says we're suffering because we don't take the time to stop and sniff the roses. In other words, slow down, be more attentive to things, and learn how to appreciate pleasures as they arise, as they're offered. The, behind this, though, is the assumption that okay, these are the main pleasures we have in life, simple sensory pleasures. If you don't learn how to appreciate them, you're missing what life has to offer. Life could end very quickly. It's no coincidence, no mere coincidence, that this type of approach to mindfulness was developed during war, a wartime, when life was very uncertain. So just try to be appreciative of the, the little things that life has to offer before they go. But what this means is the end of suffering would be, well, there really is no end of suffering in this one. And there's going to be pain, there's going to be illness and death, but in the meantime you learn to taste whatever small pleasures there are in the meantime. Mindfulness as acceptance, as I said, comes down to two different definitions. One is um, a kind of a general acceptance of yourself. The assumption behind this one is that we're suffering because we're neurotic. We don't, um, we don't know how to relate to ourselves properly because of unskillful parenting or unskillful conditioning from society. In this understanding, craving, which the Buddha said was the cause of suffering, is not the genuine problem. The problem is your inability to learn to accept and live with your cravings. Learn how to accept the fact that you've got cravings. Learn how to accept yourself. Um, and don't be so judgmental. Another teaching that's brought in to support this is that you should have trust in your innate goodness. This is why teachings on Buddha nature show up in Vipassana circles. Basically, it's your idea that basically deep down inside you are a good person and you should learn how to trust that. When you can trust that, then you realize that even if craving comes, you can learn, if you're operating from trust, learn to accept the craving. You're not going to do anything harmful based on that craving, but you'll just be able to let it go. A second definition of suffering, excuse me, mindfulness as acceptance is the one where mindfulness is defined as total awareness. And here acceptance means something a little bit different means learning how to accept the present moment for what it is, in terms of the past was set in such a way that you could not change, you could not avoid the present moment being the way it is. However, change is so pervasive and unpredictable that the only way that you can act in an appropriate way in response to the present moment is try to be totally aware of everything that's going on in your range of your senses right now. In other words, you try to pull yourself away from any past conditioning so as to totally grok the present moment through a full awareness of the present moment. And this way you will intuit the skillful response that whatever is called forth. Um, you might compare this to the I Ching approach to meditation. You cast the I Ching to find out okay, what's the essence of this moment right now and then you act in response to that essence. And it can change in any way. So the only way you can know what to do is instead of trying to figure out what you did in the past that worked in similar situations, just grok the present moment and the response will be intuitive. <coughs> Okay, so we've got four different definitions of mindfulness here. Definition as defined as bare awareness, appreciative awareness, affectionate awareness, learn how to appreciate yourself, accept yourself, and then finally total awareness, getting fully immersed in the present moment with no thought for past conditioning. What all of these approaches have in common is one, they assume that the present moment is a given to which you, you react or not react. 
this goes against the Buddha's definition of the present moment, as the present moment has a lot of your own intentional input in order to make it a present moment experience. You can't experience the present moment without some intention on your part. There's no such thing as the pure present without an intentional input. So the assumption here that they were operating on, the other four definitions, is that the present moment is this given, and all you can do is either react or respond or decide not to react and not to respond. The second thing that they all have in common is that they all recommend an, what you might call an indiscriminate response to the present moment. They don't encourage you to divide it up into those four aspects that the Buddha recommended. You've got the present and either you learn how to just be non-reactive, be appreciative, accept in, in, in the sense of accepting yourself or accept that okay, this is the nature of the present moment that you've got to be totally aware of. So that they, don't, they don't encourage a sort of an analytical approach to the present moment that the Buddhist teachings on appropriate attention might, would encourage. Bear, or bear awareness, the teaching on bear awareness actually discourages any kind of in active investigation. It also makes a mistake in that it defines non-reactivity as non-intention. That somehow if you just don't react, you're not creating any new karma. Well, as the Buddha pointed out, not reacting is a kind of karma. It's a decision you make. It's a choice you make. It's an intention. So you can't get out of intention just by, by being very non-reactive. Um, the other forms of mindfulness which encourage acceptance or appreci appreciation, they discourage you using your faculty of judgment. And how many times you've heard that the judging mind is a bad thing? And actually, if being judgmental is bad, being judicious is a good thing. You, know? you want to be judicious in your choice. Choice of what to do and what to think. That's one of my a Dharma teacher, was a good friend of mine, once said, when you're, when you're practicing mindfulness, it doesn't mean you go into the supermarket and there's a rotten tomato and there's a good tomato and the storekeeper asks you, you know, which are you going to take? And you say, well, I really can't choose. <laughs> no, no, that's not what, that's what not the meditation is all about. You go for the good, good, for the good tomato. <laughs> or if, you, if you're going in for surgery, ask your surgeon before you go in, are you, are you, you know, non-judgmental? <laughs> Do you not have a judging mind? <laughs> you want the surgeon to know what's the skillful and unskillful thing to do in your brain, okay? <laughs> the teaching of uh, mindfulness as total acceptance, or excuse me, as um, total awareness, trying to get out of any past conditioning so you can thoroughly immerse yourself in the present, discourages you from learning lessons from the past. You know, the things that you've learned in the past, you should keep in mind. And if you learn, you, you stick your, fire in the, your th finger in the fire yesterday, it will probably be the same thing. You have the same um, result as if you stick the fire. I oh, can't talk today. You stick your finger in the fire today. In other words, there are certain patterns in life that don't change, and you should learn to learn how to be skillful enough in observing. Okay, what things are unchanging patterns, and what things are really variable, so that you can learn. Okay. It's like when you go into the, into the wilderness in Alaska, they have these signs. Did I talk about this the other day, the bear awareness signs? <laughs> <laughs> they actually have signs in Alaska. They did. They don't anymore. But they did a couple years back called bear awareness. And it's a list of things to do when you're encountered with a bear. And, and a lot of them are do's and don'ts. You know, don't run, first thing. Do make yourself look large. Kind of wave your hands and speak in a calm voice to the bear. And that will tend to keep the bear away. And there are certain things that you can actually say, do and don't. Okay? But then they come to a point where, okay, if the bear attacks, lie down and play dead. Okay? 
and the bear may nudge you and then decide that you're not alive anymore, loses interest and goes away. In 90% of the cases. <laughs> they say the bear may actually start chewing on you and they say be alert to notice whether the bear is chewing out of curiosity or chewing out of hunger. <laughs> if you notice the bear is chewing out of hunger, fight. <laughs> Put up a fight. <laughs> In other words, there are some areas of life where you can say yes or no, do or don't, and it holds across the line. You know? Don't kill, don't steal, don't have illicit sex, don't lie, don't take intoxicants. The Buddha lists these as things you just don't do, because no matter how you do them, no matter how you dress them up and try to justify them as skillful means, they're not skillful. Okay? But there are a lot of other areas where you can't have this list of do's and don'ts, and what you have to do is learn from your own observation. But the, the total immersion approach to the, total, to the present moment, saying just be totally aware of the present moment, try to drop all past conditioning, that discourages you from learning from some very you know, clear patterns that your experience has had in the past. So there are limitations to all of these other forms and definitions of mindfulness. The question arises, okay, given their limitations, can they be used as temporary skillful means? In other words, suppose you have somebody who's really neurotic. You, know, they, they do, you want to do teach them how to be a little bit more accepting of themselves before they can actually do the meditation. If you have somebody who really is in too much of a rush in life, they're just running, 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 always focused on future goals, it is useful to say, well, stop and just, okay, you know, as, as the cow philosophy cartoon says, stop and eat the flowers at the side of the road. You know, just stop and appreciate what you've got. So there is a, there is a place for these different practices, you know, given that people have different problems as they approach the meditation. The question, though, is, um, should we continue calling these mindfulness? Are there better terms for this? And it turns out that Actually, you're dealing with two questions here. One is, when you say this, this in a particular instances might be skillful, okay, how do you decide what's skillful and what's not? As we all know, the term skillful means is probably one of the most abused terms in Western Buddhism. You can justify anything as skillful means. You can get your students to drink as a way of getting over their, their attachment to their ego. I mean, this has actually been proposed as a way of getting people over attachment. And it's, you know, I think it's an abuse of the term. So you actually need a framework for deciding what's skillful and what's not. And this is where appropriate, appropriate attention comes in. Okay, when is it skillful to teach someone a practice of meditation where they're just learning to be accepting of themselves? And at what point do you say, okay, enough of the self-acceptance, we've got to move on. There's, there's more to be done. So appropriate attention provides the framework for choosing when it's skillful and when it's not to recommend these different practices. And also, it's, the second point is that if these are really different skills, and they are, why don't we call them by different names? Why do we have to use mindfulness to cover this whole range of things? I mean, if you, you put too much into a term, after a while it breaks. It just not, doesn't mean anything at all. And it turns out that <coughs> the Buddha had some very specific names for these different types of approach to the present moment. Um, bare awareness, he says, is equanimity. You just learn how to accept what's coming. You just be there without reacting to it. Um, <coughs> The appreciative awareness, he calls, I haven't found, I haven't found the term for that one yet because that was the one that just occurred to me a few minutes ago. Let's move on to acceptance. Um, acceptance, uh, the first kind, where you learn to accept yourself, he, he calls patience, combined with equanimity. I gained this insight, um, I don't know how many of you were here for the John Cha commemoration a couple years ago, 
when the different Westerners who'd been studying with Ajahn Chah talked about their time with him. I wasn't there present for the meeting, but I did listen to the tapes. And one thing that struck me that over and over again that you know, poor Ajahn Chah got all these neurotic Westerners dumped on his doorstep. <laughs> and he had to teach them patience and equanimity because we don't learn this in our culture. You know? We don't learn patience. We're taught to be impatient. He said, calm down, settle down, and just be very patient about things. And that patience, the word patience, kanti, also includes tolerance. Learn how to tolerate difficult situations without getting all worked up about it. And then also develop equanimity. And so this was a John Chas approach to dealing with people who tend to have a neurotic problem about themselves. They have problems accepting themselves. They have problems um, not feeling guilty about things. He teaches them. He would teach them patience, tolerance, and equanimity. And as for acceptance in the second sense, second, just trying to be totally immersed in the present moment, the Buddha would teach alertness. Just be very alert to what you're doing. But alertness, just the teaching on alertness already there focuses you on something because you have to combine alertness here with mindfulness and ardency. This one, the Buddha teaches creating um, a foundation of mindfulness. Or frame of reference for your practice, he says, it's not just being mindful, not just keeping something in mind, but you're alert mindful and ardent at the same time. Now, in this case, mindfulness, when you're coming into the present moment, means recognizing and remembering patterns of what's skillful and unskillful. And now to keep that in mind. The lessons you've learned from the past, bring them and apply them to the present moment. Don't forget them. Also, it, it directs your attention to, okay, what are, what are your intentions right now? What are you planning to do? What are your choices that are available to you right now? Instead of just crocking the present moment, you want to really look carefully. Okay? This element of intention, which is my one choice, this is my, my one free choice in the present moment, exactly what am, what am I doing with that? And through this practice, you refine your awareness of what's skillful and unskillful. As for ardency, it, just, it doesn't mean just plowing into the present moment, it means using right effort. In other words, once you have the insight into what's skillful and unskillful, you try to foster skillful decisions and you try to put aside unskillful ones. In other words, the Buddha's in the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, he combines them with other qualities which will focus you on where in the present moment is, the, is it really important to pay attention and what you should do with that freedom that you have in the present moment to make choices. So the advantage of keeping these issues of appropriate intention in mind, in other words, what are the Four Noble Truths, how do they apply to your present experience? How do you divide up your present experience in terms of the Four Noble Truths? And at the same time, how do you then what are the ways you shape? How, how, what is the, how do you act towards these different um, classifications? Um, if you bring this approach to the present moment, you're actually following the Buddha's own path to awakening. And if you remember the, the story of the Buddha's awakening, on the night of his awakening, he had, he had three realizations or three knowledges. The first one was knowledge of his past lives. In other words, knowledge about himself. Going back not only you know, to, to, to what Freud would do, taking you back to your childhood, he went back further. You know, life before that, the life before that, and life before that. What did he experience? In other words, he started out with his own personal narrative, which is the way a lot of us come to meditation. We come with our own personal narrative. There's that great story they tell about the man who went to the Goenka retreat and heard the Goenka tape, and the Goenka, he heard Goenka say, Okay, notice your desperation. 
Now he was really desperate in coming to the retreat, and he said, ah, yes, someone who appreciates my personal story, the reason I'm here. The next day he listened to the tape again, and actually it was going, because I noticed your respiration. <laughs> <laughs> but we all, come to, we all come to the meditation with our stories. Okay? And as a result, we hear things in terms of what our story is. But the Buddha didn't stop with the story or try to go straight from his own story into the present moment. He stepped back in his second knowledge to say, this business about rebirth, does it happen only to me? Does it happen to everybody? He got the larger picture. And he actually saw in his second knowledge, okay, beings dying and being reborn, and he began to see a pattern. The pattern was that their, the level of their rebirth, pleasure, the pleasure or pain that they experienced depended on their actions. So in seeing the larger picture, he picked out, okay, what's the, the essential element? in this larger pattern. So it wasn't just him. In other words, you're coming to meditation desperate. It's not just you. You're coming to the meditation with feelings of guilt or anxiety. It's not just you. Everybody carries these around. Whereas the issue? The issue is in the intention, what you're doing in the present moment. Seeing that, then the Buddha in his third knowledge focuses attention in the present moment, particularly on this issue of intention and how your understanding of the present moment is going to affect your intentions. In other words, bringing appropriate attention to the present moment. So when we come to meditation and you try to step back and look at the present moment in terms of these issues of appropriate attention, okay, what are the actions you're doing? What are your intentions? What are the results? How do past intentions influence the present? How do present influ intentions influence the, the present moment and the future? You look in these terms, okay, you're bringing the right mindset to the present moment that you can actually get the most out of it. Because after all, when we're sitting here focused on the breath, our breath is the same as the Buddha's breath. There's nothing different about your breath and the Buddha's breath. It's the same thing. But the question, and we're actually standing where he stood, right in the present moment, looking at the breath. The question is, okay, why did he gain awakening and why, why aren't we gaining awakening? He brought appropriate attention to bear to the present moment. And if we can learn to bring appropriate attention to bear to our experience of the present moment, there's an opportunity that we'll gain awakening well, as well. So those are my thoughts for this morning. I was wondering if you had any questions. <laughs> Fortunately, this talk will be available on the web. <laughs> My original plan was just to do a few rambling remarks, and then Gil reminded me that this was going to be put on the web, and I said, I can't just ramble around. <laughs> Any questions? Yes, question. Yesterday you were talking about breathing through the eyes, mm -hmm. and also, um, so I was trying that this morning, um, and I wouldn't say that I was breathing through the eyes, but I would say that as I tried that, I noticed that the squeezing sensation you talked about um, really subsided very substantially. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was wondering if you could describe what you meant by breathing through the eyes, because even though the squeezing... Really was affected in a very positive way. I wasn't really breathing through my eyes at all. Okay, breathing not only means the air coming in and out of the lungs, but it also this energy flow in the body. And a lot of the a lot of the energy flow has to do with the the, the, the blood coursing through the body. And so, if you allow the energy, if you allow the sort of these different squeeze sensations that we usually do around the blood flow in the body, you allow those to relax, then the energy can flow a lot more easily. And one way of helping that along is just visualizing, okay, energy can come in and out of my eyes, energy can come in and out the back of my neck, anywhere in the body. 
because we tend to focus a lot of tension up here. This is one of the reasons I said try to relax this as much as possible. In German, the words are strung together to create a new meaning. Mm -hmm. When you describe the poly of combination, the poly words in combination to discriminate between the different kinds of mindfulness, are there separate words in poly or are they strung together? They're separate words. A patient, there's a special word just for patience, special word for equanimity. And mindfulness has a very precise meaning in the Pali Canon, which is keeping something in mind. The combination, though, of a little bit of ardency and a little bit of patience and so forth, would that be a separate word? Yes. There's a a string of words that the Buddha says. When you practice this, you want to practice this quality and that quality. So it's it's bringing separate qualities together as a cluster. Question here? Yeah. Kind of um, applying practically um, what you're saying um, in one thing that comes to mind. Um, Talking about learning from your experience, uh, having an intention, learning from your experience, and um, not clinging to things and so forth. And I'm thinking about a situation. um, uh, Last year I had um, edited some of your talks, for example, Mm -hmm. and um, perhaps edited out a bunch of ahs and so forth that maybe was overdoing it, but there was a lot of noise that I was going for. Mm -hmm. Which is um, very much appreciated. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the word got back uh, to me through Allison um, that perhaps um, what I'd heard her say was, that you had said, please let me sound like a human being or something like that. And I don't know if it was in context, but that's where it resonated with me is, oh my God, I have, um, you know, done too much or no, something no, like no, that. No. And so there's the, the, the wondering about apology. Um, uh, someone like you, you're letting go of things all the time. Um, and hopefully most of us are. And so that's where my question is about uh, uh, making apologies to people for things that perhaps we've done in error in the past, mm-hmm. um, and um, really being able to let go in yourself that that sense of perhaps I've hurt that person in some way without mm-hmm. intending to. Mm-hmm. So um, the role of apology in all of this. Well, it's it's very useful to be able to apologize because that you know, means you have to lower your level of conceit, mm-hmm. which is always useful in the practice. Now there. Are, Again, you have to play this by ear. This is one of those cases where you know, the bear is chewing on you and you have to decide whether it's out of curiosity or out of hunger. You go and apologize to some people and they say, what? <laughs> and in a case like that, you just okay, you can sense when, when, it's, when it's inappropriate in the sense that they don't know why you would apologize. But if it seems like you, you actually did something in their conscience of a hurt, and you can sense that, you'd be, you know, be quick to apologize. Um, I have a question about gratitude mm-hmm. and how using gratitude in your life um, benefits your practice and your daily life. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's probably the, one of the most basic virtues in the practice. Because um, basic gratitude is something you feel for someone who's done you something good and that you appreciate that. The sign that you appreciate that is, shows that you re- appreciate the value of goodness. That means you're also going to be more likely to put forth the effort yourself to do helpful things to other people. 
that, gee, I know the way I am today, what I am because of the help that I got from other people. There must be other people out there who would appreciate my help as well. As you get more appreciative of other people's help, you're more likely to be helpful as a person. And it also helps to remind you this, this sense that we have of, I am, boy, I'm pretty cool, I've done this, I've done that. Well, you depend on a lot of people to get where you are. And again, that helps kind of lower the level of conceit. Brings you back into the human race. <laughs> and also makes the human race a lot better place to be. I mean, we're, I think this is one of the strange things about our culture. We, we, if you turn on the TV and watch the pro- programs that are aimed at, t- at kids, the kids are taught to be greedy. They're taught to be impatient. They're taught to be snide to their elders. And all of this sells. But it certainly doesn't, it doesn't create a good society. And so we're trying to back up and say, you know, if, if I were to raise a kid, you know, uh, if I were to raise a kid and the kid didn't have any gratitude, I'd wonder, why am I doing this? And if there's no gratitude, why would we have a society anyhow? So it's the kind of the basic virtue that keeps a society going. So remind yourself, you know, the good things we have in society come from gratitude. So try to develop gratitude within yourself. Is that helpful? Okay, well, thank you for your attention.